It's Friday, 10th of November, and this is your Capital Economics Weekly Briefing. Coming up, what to make of a notable shift in the diplomatic currents within US-China competition. But first, Group Chief Economist Neil Shearing joins me to talk macro and markets in the week ahead. Hi, Neil. Hi, David. We've got to start with central bank communications, I think. It's been a recurrent theme on this podcast, in part because some central bank officials just don't seem to be very good at it. I guess, in fairness, it doesn't seem an enviable task, but we've got Hugh Pill, chief economist of the Bank of England. He starts the week saying it wasn't unreasonable to look to rate cuts for the Bank of England in the second half of next year. He ends the week saying rates will need to persist at the current 5.25% because they need to squeeze out inflation. I mean, tonally, quite different comments. Which pill do we take? Yeah, indeed. Difficult pill to swallow and all of that. And sandwiched in between, you'd had comments from Governor Bailey, who, in fairness, I think feels like he has to talk for the Monetary Policy Committee as a whole, but also pushing back on this idea that there would be scope to loosen policy soon, suggesting in words that he's used before, actually, there's still more work to to do. I think there's several points to, to make here. One is that in the past, Pill has been, if not necessarily an outrider on the NBC, he has tend to, tended to to speak a bit more independently to other permanent members of the the MPC or, or, or staff members of the MPC. And like I say, Bailey perhaps has to reflect or feels like he has to reflect the, the views of the, the MPC as a whole. But I think there's a there's a, also a sense, like as you say, that it's really difficult for, for central banks to, to find the right ways of communicating to bond markets their intentions, partly because, as we've discussed before, the old ways of forecasting inflation, those models appear to have broken down. So they're flying blind to a certain extent. But also this fundamental challenge of having scrambled to tighten monetary policy, the last thing you want to do is give the the markets a sense that you might be countenancing some loosening at some point in the near future because then financial conditions will start to loosen. And and you, having got the inflation genie you know, partially back into the bottle, you let it back out again. So really difficult communication challenge for central banks. But I think underlying it is this sense that their, their old models for forecasting inflation have broken down, they're flying a bit blind, they're struggling to communicate at the end of a, of a tightening cycle. Yeah, it was interesting, Bailey sounding more like Jerome Powell, wasn't he? We had these comments from Powell towards the end of the week talking about a lack of confidence that the policy stance is sufficiently restrictive. He was talking about inflation head fakes, about not being misled by a few months of inflation data, also about the risk of overtoning in fairness. But his broad message does seem to be that the Fed is you know, sticking with the job until the job is, is done. Reading through these comments from Bailey and from Powell, what's underlying all of this communication? Is it this idea that they, they don't want to give the game away? You've spoken before on this podcast about how the last thing central bankers want to do is talk about when they're going to cut. Or, or is there perhaps this genuine fear that, that inflation could prove resurgent or, or even just the sense that getting back to, to these 2% targets is going to be a lot harder than, than markets are anticipating? I think it's a combination of all of those things and underlying all of it, if you're a central banker, is you don't want to be remembered as Arthur Burns. You want to be remembered as Paul Volcker. You don't want to go down as the, the central bank governor that let the inflation genie out of the bottle, albeit in incredibly challenging circumstances around the pandemic, and then fail to get it back in. Now, I think as it happens, the truth is that the monetary tightening that we've had so far has had almost 
no impact on inflation itself. Uh, most of the falls in inflation that we've had have been about the effects of the pandemic on inflation washing through. You know, the channels through which monetary policy is supposed to work, slowing demand, loosening labour markets, there's not much evidence that actually monetary policy has, has been has been calling labour markets, for example. Tighter monetary policy has been calling labour markets. So I don't think you can ascribe much credit to central banks for the falls in inflation that we've seen so far. By the same token, if you're a central banker, like I say, you're not going to be taking your foot off the brake because you're worried that, particularly with unemployment still quite low, below most estimates of natural rates, that you get this resurgence in wage growth. So I think I think it's a combination of all of those things. But like I say, you don't want to be remembered as the Arthur Burns. You want to be remembered as the, the Paul Volcker, uh, which is why you're, you're getting this kind of slightly hawkish rhetoric. Well, let's stay on inflation. The coming week, I guess the big release is US October CPI. That's on Tuesday. We've had some fairly good news on the US inflation front of late, but September CPI was a bit of an upside surprise, wasn't it? What's our expectation for Tuesday? Well, first of all, you look at the headline or core. Obviously, if you're a central banker, you care more about core inflation. For what it's worth, on the headline front, we've gone for a 0.1% month-on-month increase in headline CPI that would push the headline year-on-year rate down to 3.3%. On the core front, another 0.3% month-on-month increase. So in line with September, but stronger than the 0.2% month-on-month increases that we had earlier in the summer months. That would keep the core rate at about just over 4% year on on year. So a couple of things going on under the hood, in particular in the October CPI numbers, healthcare, which had been a modest drag on core inflation through the past 12 months, that's going to start to become a bit more of a positive, give a bit more of a positive impulse to core CPI because of the way that's calculated using lagged profits from from health insurers. Underlying all of this, if you look at the, the Fed's preferred measure of PCE core services, excluding housing, this is this kind of super core measure, that had been showing some pretty healthy declines over the past several months, which appeared to stall in September. And I suspect we'll stall again in October. We've done a piece of work um, looking at this, which we can link to in the podcast notes. A lot of this, though, is not about what's happening in the labor market, inflation linked to the labor market. It appears to be one or two sectors, particularly transport services sectors and the financial and insurance sector. And we think that could be short-lived, though the, 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 the kind of stickiness of prices there could be short-lived. So I think we'll get a bit of stickiness in core inflation in October. That will be repeated in the in the in the super core measure that the Fed tends to look at in October. But by the time we get to November, December, I think some likelihood that the, the super core measures of inflation, core inflation starts to 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 slow again. Yeah, I think one of our key calls for twenty four is is US inflation falling faster than many, including the Fed expect. I know we're currently putting together our other key views for the coming year at the moment. Give us a flavor of what twenty twenty four is going to look like. Yes, I think there's a couple of points worth stressing. The first is that when it comes to the US, we're expecting a pretty sharp slowdown in growth over both Q4, but particularly kind of Q1, Q2 next year. That will push up uh, unemployment rates, we think. It will contribute to a decline in inflation that will be a bit sharper, as you say, than than the Fed and markets expect, but won't be the only factor pulling down inflation. There's still some post-pandemic distortions to, to work through there too, which will continue to, to to wash through. So that should mean that the Fed is in a position actually, despite all the hawkish rhetoric we've had over the, the, the past week or so, to countenance loosening policy next year, we think probably from Q2 time perhaps. 
in Europe, in the, the the really striking difference actually this year has been between the performance of Europe and the US. US economy about three percent bigger than it was this time last year. Europe basically stagnant. Okay, we've had German GDP contracting a little in Q3. The French economy growing a bit. UK economy stagnating. But I mean, the broad picture here is that. Europe's economy is stagnating while the US is growing. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is to do with the, the the energy crisis in Europe having hit Europe's economy to a much greater extent. I think the another is to do with perhaps the effects of monetary tightening coming through or taking longer to come through in the US than, than in Europe. But I think that, that divergence in performance will continue through next year. We're going to get a sharp slowdown in, in US growth, but I think we're going to be flirting to a much greater extent with recession deep in Europe. And indeed, we've, we're forecasting mild recessions. So again, some monetary loosening in Europe next year, including from the Bank of England, despite those comments from, from Governor Bailey. But I think the timing of those rate cuts is still a bit more uncertain, but I suspect when they come, they'll end up being slightly larger than the the markets are currently pricing in. And I'm forecasting that one of our most frequently asked client questions in 2024 is going to be about fiscal strains. On the outcome of that US 30-year treasury auction on on Thursday and and the week turnout for that, it was just one auction amid many, but it did seem to crystallise a lot of fears about the sustainability of public debt in a world of higher rates. This is the US government, though, we're talking about. I mean, are these fears really justified? Well, the US government has more latitude to run large deficits than other um, governments, particularly those in the Eurozone, which uh, have to operate within the straitjacket of monetary union. But it is really stark if you look at the, the fiscal numbers across the G7, actually, but particularly in the US, the extent to which fiscal policy is looser now than was the case in 2019, before the pandemic, when, of course, most economies... Uh, across the G7, most most analysts would argue we're also running at full employment. So there's been a structural loosening, uh, to my mind, in fiscal policy, and it has been particularly large in the US. And that's what's driving these fears in bond markets. Now, none of this would really matter, I think, if there was bipartisan support for getting deficits under control and a clear plan uh, for, do- for doing so, and a clear commitment to fiscal rectitude having been communicated to the markets. To, to a large extent, fiscal sustainability is as much about words as it is about deeds. We saw that with the List Trust government in in the UK. But of course, we've not had that commitment to fiscal rectitude from the US Congress. And I think that, again, that the politics of around fiscal policy is playing into those concerns in, in bond markets too. So both a large fiscal loosening, but also the, the, the lack of kind of bipartisan support or agreement on on a path to getting deficits under control is also then feeding back into concerns about the fiscal trajectory. Okay, last question. And I don't know if this is global economic news of the week, but Tiantian, Meixiang and Xiao Qiji are going home. These are panda bears who've been at the Smithsonian Zoo, two of them been there for, for nearly quarter of a century. These aren't the only pandas that are being repatriated from Western zoos back to China, but it all does feel like a bit of a metaphor, doesn't it? And it's coming just ahead of the the expected meeting on Wednesday between Xi Jinping and Joe Biden. Are globalized panda bears casualties of a fracturing global economy? Yes, maybe panda bears are a new front in in global fracturing. I mean, the expectations around this summit and meeting, I think, are pretty low. It's mostly about optics. But I think it's significant that there has perhaps been a dialing back in some of the more 
heated rhetoric that surrounded the US-China relationship, say, 12, 18 months ago. And this is interesting because this is going to probably be the last meeting between Xi and Biden ahead of Taiwan's election in January, which we've written about and could be a potential flashpoint, possibly even the US election in November. I think one of the points here is that the kind of the rhetoric around fracturing will kind of ebb and flow. And like I say, it is cooled a bit over the past six months or so and, and in the run up to, to, to this summit. But the fundamental drivers of US-China fracturing are not going away. Now, okay, the exact form that fracturing takes will be shaped to a certain extent by leaders in both countries and the US election could could shift the direction of fracturing in the form it takes, but it's not going to roll it back. You know, Trump's already talking about 10% unilateral tariff on on all US imports, for example. So yes, maybe panda bears are a new front in global fracturing, but, but we've also got AI. I think there'll also be growing pressures on, in financial flows and in the financial system too, and around certain trade flows as well. So fracturing's not going away, and it's something that investors are going to increasingly have to manage and plan for. Neil Shearing there on panda bears, global fracturing, fiscal risks, and the challenges still facing central bankers. As Neil said, our analysis on US supercore inflation will be on the podcast page, but do explore the website to find out much more about policy risks, etc. CE Advanced clients, they get full access to all our coverage, so do get in touch to find out more about our premium platform. You can learn more about it at capitaleconomics.com forward slash CE hyphen advance. Advanced access also includes invites to all our drop-ins. Those are our regular short-form webinars. We've got a couple coming up in the coming week. There's one on Tuesday about that US CPI release. That's at 10 o'clock Eastern, 3 o'clock London time. And on Thursday, we're talking US-China fracturing. This event will also mark the release of a new interactive dashboard, which shows how the world economy is breaking into competing US and China-aligned blocks. It's 3 million data points mapped across tens of charts to give the most complete visual guide to this enormously complex issue. We will, of course, alert you once it's released. Again, CE Advanced clients will get access to all the underlying data to bring it directly into your workflow and take our analysis further. Do get in touch to learn more. That drop-in will also include focus on what's happened to Saudi Arabia's allegiances in recent months. Our fracturing work includes this delineation of 217 countries and territories worldwide by where they sit in terms of these US and China blocks. This isn't just an academic exercise. Understanding the size and shape of these blocks is crucial to understanding how the global economy and markets are going to evolve in the coming years and decades. One of the more interesting moves in recent months has been a shift in Saudi's leanings. It had been unaligned, so sitting between the blocks, but our MENA team now think it's leaning China's way, and that has consequences for the Saudi and global economies. Jason Tuvey, our Deputy Chief EM Economist, has just written an in-depth analysis about what's been happening to the kingdom's relations with the US and with China. And I spoke to him about it earlier this week. I started by asking about the recent trajectory of Beijing's ties with Riyadh. Economic ties between Saudi and China have been strengthening for, for some time. China is now Saudi's biggest export market, where it's just 5% of Saudi exports now go to the US. Uh, and we've seen Saudi also try to tighten its grip as a supplier of oil to China uh, with Iran constructing refineries there. They're also cultivating the economic relationship in other areas. There's been talk of Saudi accepting renminbi for its oil exports. They're trying to attract Chinese tourists to the kingdom. 
and there's also been a raft of Chinese uh, investment deals signed earlier this year. And we've seen sort of the political relations follow a similar pattern to the economic ties. Obviously, taking a step back, the two countries share quite similar governance systems where power is quite concentrated in Saudi. Of course, that's within the realms of the royal family in China, the Communist Party. But if we look at other areas, both countries tend to, to vote in similar ways at the UN and often in disagreement with the US, actually. We've also seen that there's been stronger political links on full display, say, during President Xi's trip to the kingdom late last year. I think perhaps the most important area, though, we've seen ties start to strengthen is in the area of international and security affairs. Obviously, the latter in particular being traditionally an area for Saudi Arabia to have cooperation with the US. So we've seen Saudi invited to China-led institutions such as the BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is focused on security and counterterrorism. The two countries have held joint naval drills. The kingdom has purchased Chinese defense equipment, including drones. And in particular, China is apparently helping Saudi Arabia to build ballistic missiles. If we bring all of that together, we think ultimately that means that Saudi is no longer underlined between the US and China, but instead now leads more towards towards China. I think we would emphasize, though, that Saudi is unlikely to become a strong China ally like Russia or, or Iran. It will remain quite pragmatic. Its strategic position gives it quite a lot of leverage to play off both sides. And history shows how the Al Saud have operated during previous tensions between superpowers, say during the time of World War One, when the Al Sauds were in control of Central and Eastern Arabia and also during World War Two, for example. So it is fluid. It, it could move back towards that unaligned stance that you talk about. But I, I just wanted to touch on something you said there about how Saudi Arabia diplomatically has aligned with China in some regards against the US, because this isn't just about a more assertive Chinese foreign policy approach that's pulling the kingdom away from the US. The, the relationship with the US has become strained over recent years, and that, that's helping to drive the process too, isn't it? Talk a bit about that. So, I mean... Economic ties, like I sort of alluded to earlier, have with the US and Saudi, they've been loosening for some time. And certainly the stronger political relations between Saudi and China contrast quite drastically with a deterioration in those between Saudi and the US over the past couple of decades. If we go back a little bit, I mean, US-Saudi relations did improve after the worsening in the wake of the 9-11 attacks and, and the Second Gulf War. That was helped in part by Saudi intelligence sharing and counterterrorism arrangements. And there was, of course, a brief loving with the, with the Trump administration. I guess one key crunch point was obviously around the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in 2018. That seemed to create a schism in bilateral relations as widespread condemnation of the kingdom across the US political spectrum. Sanctions were imposed, albeit only on individuals that were deemed to be connected with the killing of Mr. Khashoggi. But we did see on the campaign trail, President Biden called Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman a pariah, and he subsequently released a damning report into the Khashoggi murder that pointed the finger at the Crown Prince. I mean, I would say more recently, US-Saudi relations have stabilised and, if anything, possibly improved a little, particularly as the US has sought to broker those normalisation of relations between Saudi and Israel. But the relations are still far from what they once were a few decades ago. And I think another angle to this is 
the fact that Saudi is partnering with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, that adds to signs that they're looking to, for alternative arrangements to the security pact that they've had with the US for, for many decades now. Again, partly reflects the looser political backing, but also more importantly, question marks over the commitment of the US to provide security support to the kingdom. I mean, we've seen repeated efforts to block sales of defense equipment to the kingdom. In his last days in office, President Obama forced sale of uh, precision-guided missiles um, to Saudi due to concerns about the war in Yemen. President Biden went further and withdrew US support for the war. And we saw following the OPEC decision late last year to cut all output that members of Congress pushed for arms sales to Saudi to be halted. And within Saudi, there's some that feel that the US should have taken a stronger action against Iran in response to the attack on the Abqaiq oil processing facility in 2019. Of course, there, there are already signs that the West is also trying to pull the kingdom back from China's orbit. We've seen as part of discussions over a peace deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel, of course, which have been put on hold amid the Israel-Hamas conflict. The US was reportedly discussing the establishment of a mutual defence treaty with, with the kingdom. And we it might also be the case that uh, Saudi officials look at the support that the US is providing to Israel in, in the current conflict. And, and, and I think that they want a bit of that, really. Um, we've also seen at the recent G20 summit in, in September, the establishment of the so-called India-Middle East-Europe economic corridor, again, an, an effort to push back against China's influence as well. Let's bring the economic implications into all of this, because you've discussed this shift in alignment. You've talked about this this rocky re- relationship between between the US and, and Saudi Arabia. You've talked about, obviously, the, this increasing shift in Saudi alignment towards China. But from an investor point of view, you know, you're looking at how the relationship is shifting. Where should we be looking for evidence that this is all having a practical effect on, on macro and market outcomes? The thing I would highlight three areas really we should focus on. I guess the first one, perhaps most importantly for many, will be oil policy. We already know that Saudi is not really listening anymore to US demands on oil policy. That was quite clear that with the OPEC cuts late last year, which came shortly after Biden visited the kingdom, pushing for oil output to be raised. So I think one thing we might see is Saudi may start to place a bit more weight on how its oil production decisions are at least perceived in Beijing. Another area, I think, is there seems to be a joint desire among Saudi and China to reduce their vulnerability to the actions of Western governments. And I think that will probably result in some efforts to cultivate a sort of mutual dependence that might see the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund continue to diversify its asset portfolio, potentially putting more investments into China, for example. We talked about accepting renminbi for oil exports, that would be another. There may be other areas we don't quite know about yet, but that's, I think, cultivating that mutual dependence is something that both sides will probably be focused on. And then I think the final thing is what it means for Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030 reforms. I think at the margin, at the very least, stronger ties with China could undermine Saudi Arabia's efforts to attract investment from the West to help with those reforms. FDI into the kingdom has been quite weak in recent years. Now, FDI from China has picked up, but it would need to rise a lot further, really, to help Saudi's reform efforts and help with its efforts to wean itself off its dependence on oil. 
if that doesn't happen, then that certainly will undermine uh, Vision 2030 and efforts to boost long-term growth in, in, the, in the kingdom. Just just picking up a sec on that talk about diversifying away from the dollar, the, the idea that Saudi will try and have more renminbi-denominated trade as part of Beijing's renminbi internationalization efforts. I mean, there are, there are constraints there, aren't there? I mean, Saudi still is pegged to the dollar, and never mind the limits on the renminbi internationalization push. There are, there's domestic monetary constraints there too, aren't there? I mean, we don't see the, the peg going anywhere anytime soon. No, um, we certainly don't expect the, the dollar peg to be abandoned. Uh, in the near future, certainly. Um, and insofar as that remains the case, Saudi will need to ensure that it has sufficient liquid, ideally dollar-denominated assets in order to ensure that it can support the dollar peg, say, during periods of low oil prices or or periods of global financial stress. So, um, And we've highlighted before, there are practical limitations to just how much renminbi that Saudi could practically accept um, for its oil exports, it was otherwise lead to a big one up in the share of renminbi in in Saudi Arabia's effects reserves. And given some of the convertibility issues with renminbi, that might prove to be a problem. Let's go back to this point you made at the start about how you know when we talk about the shifting alignment, it is fluid, and and you know the Al Saud does have this tradition of not being too closely aligned to any one party. Let's look ahead to January twenty twenty five. What happens if Donald Trump is indeed Republican candidate next year's election? He's sworn in for a second time in in January 25. How does the Saudi relationship with the US and with China change as a result, do you think? Yeah, good question. I mean, as I alluded to earlier, there there was a bit of a loving between Trump and and Yao Saud. I would probably expect the same again if Trump were to return to the presidency. I guess one thing I would highlight is we we are in a slightly different world now where on paper at least Saudi and Iran, for instance, have restored diplomatic ties. That said, I'm sure the Saudis would not pass up an opportunity if Trump offers one to knock back Iran's nuclear program. He may even offer to help the, the Saudis with their own desires for the civil nuclear power, which some have seen as an attempt to secure a nuclear weapon. But whether that would be enough to push Saudi back to a more unaligned position again, or even back into the US orbit, I think we would have to wait and see. I'd be quite sceptical about that, to be honest. That was Jason Toovey on Saudi Arabia in a fracturing world. He'll be on the drop-in this coming Thursday, so do sign up to ask him your questions and join the discussion. I'll also post his report on the podcast page. It's a really interesting read, which speaks a lot to this geopolitical shift that we see at the heart of the global economy through mid-century. Again, CE Advanced clients get full access to the whole fracturing story. This really is an issue that affects all economies and markets. So find out more about Advance at capitaleconomics.com forward slash CE hyphen advance. But that's it for this week. Until next time, goodbye. Whilst this podcast is provided with all reasonable skill and care, it comprises the subjective views of our economists. Furthermore, these views are not opinions, nor do they constitute investment or financial advice, or are they guarantees or reassurances to the expected results of any investment products or outcome. You should seek your own specific advice in relation to questions you may have. We will have no liability to you in relation to this podcast whatsoever.